Hi, I'm Brandy, and this is The Sister Files. episode. Today, we're going to talk about a place that I really want to visit. It is the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. It is located in Weston, West Virginia. It has been around since the 1800s. Uh, Before we get into how the place is haunted, we are going to go into a little history of the location. If you're familiar with any of the asylums that were around in the 1800s, you know that it's probably going to have a dark history, and this one unfortunately does too. Uh, The facility was the brainchild of Thomas Story Kirkbride. The idea had such good intentions. It really did. Kirkbride was a doctor and a crusader for the mentally ill. He was also founder of the American Psychiatric Association. He wanted to help change how mental illness was viewed and treated. One of the ways that he did this was how the building was constructed. He wanted the building to have an abundance of therapeutic sunlight and fresh air. So the building has really long halls. 12-foot ceilings, lots of windows, and lots of ventilation. If you look at like an aerial view of the buildings, it kind of looks a lot like bat wings, so you can get an idea of how it was staggered out. Dr. Kirkbride wanted to give patients more freedom while there at the facility and not just kind of put them in a dark hole and forget about them, which was what previously was being done because of the misconceptions and misunderstanding of mental illness. The idea also with the asylum was for it to be self-sufficient and sustainable. Along with the buildings, there was going, there was a working farm, a gas well, waterworks, a dairy farm, and a cemetery. Before the construction could be completed, the Civil War unfortunately began. By 1861, construction of one of the buildings and the foundation for the main building was completed. But unfortunately, they did have to stop because of all the unrest that was happening because of the Civil War. Not long after, Union soldiers came into town and took over the area. They emptied the local bank so that the Confederate soldiers could not use it to fund their army, and they also took control of the asylum. They used the completed building as their barracks and the foundation as a stable. Control of the area would transfer back and forth between sides before the end of the war. In 1864, 1864, Confederate raiders 
came and took all the supplies, food, and clothing from the asylum. Pretty much everything that was intended for the first group of patients to be admitted to the hospital. At the end of the war, completion of the asylum was prioritized. Because of this, the town was saved from going into bankruptcy, a lot like many of the other towns in the nation because of the war. The asylum would actually continue to be the, the town's primary economic resource until it closed. Even though it was emptied and all the, of all foods and supplies, and they only had that one building up, they did open up to start receiving patients in 1864. And at that time, it was also renamed West Virginia Hospital. At its completion, the asylum was set up for a maximum of 250 patients. But unfortunately, as things of this nature goes, as time went by, it began to exceed its max. By 1881, just 17 years later, the asylum was overrun with close to 750 patients. Patients were four to five people to rooms that were initially made for just one patient. And even at these numbers, the farm and the dairy on the compound was unable to provide for the increase in other patients in the asylum, causing widespread malnutrition. So I was able to find a list of, of reasons for admission for that time, and it helps to explain why the asylum was overrun. Even though Kirkbride wanted to change and better the treatment of mental illness, it wasn't adopted by all. And the main reason why the facility began to become overrun is that people were just admitted for almost any reason. Pretty much, people were dumped there because family didn't want to deal with them anymore. So they became wards of the state and they can just forget about them and move on with their lives. Which is very, very sad. But some of the reasons, which today make no sense, but at that time were actual reasons that people were admitted to the hospital by their family were asthma, domestic trouble, epilepsy, female disease, not sure what that is, jealousy, masturbation, menstrual derangement, mental excitement, politics remorse, severe labor, sunstroke, superstitions, uh, even laziness was one of the things that was used to drop people off there. So as you can see, there were just no real scientific or medical reasons these people were being dropped off. Families just basically used it as an excuse to get rid of the less savory family members or to deal with the issues that they were having if they didn't want to deal with issues with their family members. Sounds like they could just be having a disagreement with someone and they got so pissed off that they decided to just drop them off at the, uh, at the asylum. So the drop-offs and the increase of patients would continue. By 1936, the hospital was six times over capacity at about 1,500 patients. 
And then it reached its peak in 1950 at 2,400 patients. That's 10 times more than it was originally meant to house. So as you can imagine, there were way more patients than there was staff. And much of the staff was overworked and inexperienced. The Charleston Gazette sent in a crew to investigate the inner workings of the asylum in about in 1949. When they were there, they found that the conditions inside were just horrid. Patients were sleeping on floors and in freezing rooms due to lack of furniture and heat. The staff was obviously and noticeably overworked and it was obviously overcrowded. Some of the staff had even locked patients in cages in open spaces because the patients were deemed unable to control. In addition to the horrid living conditions at the hospital, a doctor came and took advantage of the situation and used it as a training ground for his preferred method of curing patients of their mental illnesses. This doctor was Dr. Walter Freeman. He used what has been dubbed as the ice pick method. So, as you can tell, I don't know about you, but that name alone just kind of freaks me out and gives me the heebie-jeebies. He would use a thin pointed rod, like an ice pick, and insert into the patient's eye socket. Then he would use a window wiper motion and a hammer to force the rod to sever the connective tissue in the brain's prefrontal cortex. And if you're not aware, the prefrontal cortex is worth is thought to help organize behavior, speech, and reasoning. Freeman's idea was that if you disconnect this area, he would better be able to control the patient, thus pretty much creating zombies. As you may expect, it resulted in many deaths. And those that didn't die as a direct result of the procedure ended up with lasting physical and cognitive damage. And most of the time, Freeman would perform these procedures at the asylum without the consent of the patient. They were just randomly picked and rolled in and subjected to this horrible situation. I couldn't find an exact number, but it was rumored that he did 228 in one week alone. Now, I do know that he was a traveling physician, so he didn't stay there long. I don't know if it was just the week or if he stayed there any longer than that, but I do know that he would travel from asylum, hospital to hospital, and asylum to asylum to perform these procedures on patients as the the miracle cure for mental illness. So even with the expose in 1950 and all the other things that were happening, the facility actually was not closed down until 1994. When the asylum closed, lots of medical equipment and furniture were left behind. The building was left abandoned until 2007 when it was purchased by Joe Jordan. His plan was to re- is to restore the buildings, 
Uh, he started hosting both historical and ghost tours to help raise funds to aid in the restoration of the buildings. Now, if those, if history alone isn't reason enough for this place to be spooky and haunted, here is an, another fun fact. The entire compound sits on 666 acres and has a total of 13 buildings. I mean, seriously, could we get any more spookier? And yes, yes we can, because we haven't even gotten into the hauntings of the building. From my research, the most seen or the most talked about spirit at this asylum is a little girl by the name of Lily. Lily was born in 1863 at the hospital to Gladys. Gladys was admitted to the hospital after she was attacked and raped by Civil War soldiers. So unfortunately, due to the trauma, Gladys was slowly going mad. Supposedly, the staff named Lily and helped care for her while she was there. Unfortunately, Lily did pass away when she was just nine years old due to, due to pneumonia. The staff memorialized her room, keeping it like a child's room. Which is probably why she haunts it today. If you make a shrine to something, it's gonna stay. Anyway. Uh, when people today visit the asylum, they report having interactions with Lily. People have claimed to see her in her room. Uh, they say that Lily supposedly tugs on the clothes of the people she likes and is known to hold hands of female visitors. Some people that come to visit the asylum will bring candy and toys to Lily to help entice a response from her. Some people have even claimed that she has played with the toys in the room. Now to the Civil War wing, which of course was, you know, the first building that was constructed and taken over by the soldiers. It is said to still be haunted by those soldiers. People have reported seeing ghostly apparitions of soldiers, hearing the sounds of gunshots, footsteps, and disembodied voices. Some people have even reported to have been touched by the spirits. Next is William Cook. He lived in wards three and five. Only a year after being admitted to the asylum, Cook took his own life. He jumped into a bath filled with scalding hot water, burning many parts of his body all at once. Because of this, his body went in shock, and he died. He is said to haunt the third and fifth wards, particularly around the bathrooms. He has communicated with guests via flashlights. He makes uh, is said to make loud bangs. People have claimed to hear rolling and dragging noises in the area and the sounds of footsteps in water. There are claims of a female spirit by the name of Ruth that haunts the first floor holding cell. She is said to be very aggressive towards men because she doesn't like them and that she'll scratch and even push them. 
uh, one of the other haunted areas in the asylum is the kitchen. One of the other haunted areas in the asylum is the kitchen. There have been reports of grayish figures figures saying about the kitchen, seeming to watch people as they tour through. Sounds of pots and pans and dishes clanging together have been heard in the kitchen, even though there's no such items in there now. Shuffling feet and water have also been reported being heard in the kitchen. Another named ghost having interaction with guests at the asylum is Jesse Albright. I didn't see an exact location he haunts, but he is said to respond to his name, whispers in guests' ears, and communicates via flashlight and K2 meter. As you may expect, since this asylum was the state's dumping ground, there are many violent patients there. Many female workers were attacked. One of these nurses that was attacked was a, name, was a woman named Elizabeth. She was attacked and murdered by two patients. After they killed her, they stuck her body behind a stairwell, where her body was not discovered for two whole months. She is said to haunt the hallways in the building, leaving doors open behind her as she goes by. Ward F is where they kept most of the violent patients. In one of the rooms on the ward, there were two very violent men, plus another man with disabilities. The man with disabilities, whose name was Dean, he had a very childlike personality, but he was prone to violent outbursts, and so that's why he was included into this ward. The other two men in the room decided to torture Dean. They roped up the bedsheets, tied one end to Dean's neck, and threw the other across across some pipes in the ceiling of the room. They would slowly raise Dean up, choking him until he passed out. Then they would lower him again. And then when he came to, they would raise him up again until he passed out and then lower him. And they they did this a few times. Then they were like, oh shit, we might get in trouble for this. So they decided that their only option was to, to get rid of him. So... One man held Dean down on the floor while the other one placed one of the metal bed the one of the legs of the metal bedpost on his head and the other man jumped on the bed until the post pierced his skull thus killing Dean. Dean is said to still haunt this room. The tour guides now have uh, actually caught named this room the bed per- the bedpost murder room. People have claimed to feel legs of their pants being tugged while in the room. Which makes sense because Dean was very childlike and liked to play and color on the floor. Guests have also reported having interactions with Dean when they bring toys into the room. On the paranormal show Portals of Hell, the hosts Jack and Katrina uh, seem to make contact with Dean using toys and a K2 meter. I highly suggest that you check it out. It was a really good and interesting episode. Uh, In the surgical areas, people claim to have seen wheelchairs move on their own, heard sounds of medical equipment, and long, agonizing screams. Which makes sense, since, you know, all those lovely procedures were performed by Dr. Freeman. Uh, There was also... 
reported a possible demonic presence called the Creeper at the location. This presence was has only been documented by one paranormal group, and it was actually on an episode of Paranormal Lockdown, so I suggest you check that one out if you're curious about it. So that's what I have for the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I hope you enjoyed. Um, I hope it either <laughs> but it didn't scare you too much, and I hope it kind of makes you interested in going to go check it out, because I know I am. I can't wait until I get a chance to go. I want to do the historic historical tours and especially the haunted tours. And if you've been there yourself, please uh, reach out and let us know. I would love to hear how your experience was. You can email me at thesisterfiles2020 at gmail.com. You can reach out to me through Instagram at uh, the Sister Files Podcast, through Facebook at the Sister Files, and even through Twitter at the Sister Files Pod. I would love to hear your stories, I would, or if you have a story about visiting a different asylum, because I know I'm going to do a couple of other ones, because there's many out there. Asylums, prisons, haunted hotels, there's so many out there, and so many I want to visit. Actually, I would love to just visit them all. That was my career. That's all I did. Hunt Bigfoot, and visited haunted locations. It's my dream job. Anyway. So again, I really hope that you enjoyed the episode. I really enjoyed researching about this one and telling you about it. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, be sweet, stand tall, stay strange. Bye y'all.